Well, good morning. Uh, many of you know me, but for those of you who don't, my name is Ben Wilson. I've been attending this church for a reasonable length of time, four and a half, five years or so. I teach at Moody Bible Institute, and this December, I am uh, doing some of the pulpit supply here these uh, last few weeks of the year at EBF. So that's a little bit about me. Thank you, Jeff, and the worship team for leading us in praise this morning. Uh, that was powerful to sit and stand and praise uh, Christ and proclaim his glory. And uh, it's going to make this a hard message for me to get through, I think, in some ways. It really touched my heart, so thank you for that. Well, I, uh, I went to college at the University of Oklahoma, and my sophomore year of college, I lived with two other Christian guys. We went to the same school. We went to the same church. We were part of the same student ministry on campus. We were faithful Christian guys. We got along with most people. We wanted to get along with each other. But at a certain point in the year, we had this disagreement that was uh, causing some friction for us. And it was a disagreement about something that was important to all of us. Now, the exact nature of the disagreement is not really what matters for this conversation. What I want to talk to you about is the tension that we felt with each other once the disagreement had happened. It was really uncomfortable. It was awkward. I felt like I was walking on eggshells around these people. I knew I was supposed to love them, I was supposed to care for them, but it was really hard just to get along. We wanted to get along. We desired to have harmony in our little room, but it just didn't seem to uh, happen naturally anymore. You could cut the tension with a knife. And... uh, it was, it was awkward. It was an uncomfortable situation for us. It's not like that there was some kind of scandal that had happened. There wasn't a villain in the room. It wasn't like I was a good guy and they were the bad guys. Yes, we had a disagreement, but all of us were, you know, good guys. But we couldn't get along. That was the problem. We just couldn't have harmony with each other. It's not like we didn't know what the issue was. It's not like we were avoiding talking about the issue. In fact, we even went and met with a mutual mentor to try to work through our differences. And when we sat down, we acknowledged each other's different perspectives. We told each other that we wanted to make it right. We really wanted to get along with each other. But just talking about it didn't seem to fix it. You know, sometimes getting along takes more than just talking about getting along. Have you ever noticed that? I get along really well with the people I never talk about getting along with. I do. I never have to talk about them with them. It just happens naturally. But once I've stopped getting along with somebody, I've noticed that rarely does just talking about it fix the situation. When a relationship gets to the point where you need to talk about getting along with that person, it usually means it's a hard relationship to get along with. Now, don't get me wrong, talking matters, of course. Good communication is important, and it's a piece of dealing with conflict. But when conflict happens, getting along usually takes more than just talking about getting along. And that's where I was with my roommates that sophomore year of college. We had so many shared values, so many shared commitments and interests, but we just couldn't seem to get along with each other once we had that disagreement. We told each other we wanted to do it. We talked about it with each other, but it wasn't as easy as just flipping a switch. I wonder if you have a relationship or two in your life that's like that, 
Where at some point in time, something happened and it makes it really hard to get along with those people. Maybe your spouse, other relatives, your co-workers, your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. At some point, maybe you had a disagreement and now there's a tension between you. This happens a lot in churches. I know this church well enough to say that I've seen it happen here. There's no scandal. This church is filled with godly, faithful Christians. We all want to get along with each other. We want to live in harmony. We want to love each other well. But we also have had our disagreements. We know that there are differences of perspective, differences in priorities, differences in the expectations we bring to this place. And so some of us, when we walk into the doors of the church, we feel a tension in the room. Some of us feel like we're walking on eggshells. Maybe you feel like you're looking out for landmines. How can we find harmony with each other whenever getting along is harder than just flipping a switch and deciding to do it? What does it look like for us in our conflict to manage our differences and seek harmony in the body of Christ? At some point in time, you're probably going to find yourself facing that question in your church experience. It's a question that the church at Philippi certainly faced. You remember last week, we were looking at Philippians chapter 3 up through the beginning of Philippians chapter 4, and we saw that this external pressure of opposition from the outside was causing relational turmoil on the inside. You remember that? Let's, let's turn over there real quick. Flip over to Philippians chapter 4 and see what we looked at last week. Philippians chapter 4. This pressure on the outside was causing conflict on the inside. And Paul urges these two Christian women, Euodia and Syntyche, to work out their conflict and to get along with one another. Uh, read with me. Look at how Paul talks about it in verses 1 through 4 of Philippians 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. These two women, Euodia, Syntyche, these were faithful Christian women. There was no scandal. They were active members of the church of Philippi. These were both people who were partners with Paul in his ministry. I'm sure that they wanted harmony for their church. I'm sure that they wanted to get along with each other. But at some point in time, something happened, and we don't know what the exact issue was. And these two women had a tension between them that was causing enough of a problem in the church as a whole that Paul decided to address the issue directly. And I'm sure there were some people in the church who would have been more loyal to Euodia. There were probably some other people in the church who would have sided with Syntyche. And so it had become a problem for the whole congregation, so much so that Paul decides he needs to mention it by name and address it directly here in this letter that's going to be read in front of the entire congregation. Just imagine that church meeting. Paul tells these women to get along. But of course, the very fact that he's having to talk about getting along means that getting along wasn't as simple as just flipping a switch and making it happen. 
It's one thing to talk about getting along. It's another thing for people to actually do it. And Paul knows that. And so right after he mentions this conflict here at the beginning of Philippians chapter 4, he gives a set of practical commands. Paul offers some habits for harmony in a church under pressure. See, when conflict happens in a church, Paul knows that getting along isn't as easy as just flipping a switch. And so he exhorts these Philippians with this series of commands, these habits for harmony, where if the church will focus on these things, which mostly have to do with our hearts, our attitudes, and our mindset, then it will go a long way towards finding harmony in the church like the Lord wants us to have. And so for the rest of today, and then for next Sunday, and also for the Sunday after that, we are going to be taking a close look at the habits for harmony that Paul lays out here in Philippians chapter 4. So if you're at a place in your church experience where getting along seems harder than just flipping a switch and making it happen, if you feel like there's a tension in the room when you're around certain people at church, then these next few weeks we're going to be looking at the Apostle Paul's instructions specifically for you. There are some habits of heart and mind that will go a long way towards us finding harmony as a church. And today we're going to look at the first two of those habits. Next week we'll look at another two, and then the week after that, two more. So altogether, it's going to be six habits for harmony that Paul gives to the church at Philippi here. And we're going to be looking at these next few weeks, okay? So today, the first two habits. And uh, where does Paul start? What's the first habit for harmony that Paul gives to these Philippians as they deal with the conflict in their midst? Well, it's a familiar exhortation in this little letter. It's the command to rejoice, to be glad, to be joyful. Read verse 4 with me here. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Right after Paul mentions this conflict in the Philippian church, he tells them to rejoice, to be glad, to be joyful in the Lord. And I love how Paul repeats himself there in, in that statement. Again, I will say, rejoice. It, it reminds me of when you're trying to give directions to somebody to get somewhere. And you know that at a certain point in the trip, it's really easy to miss a turn and you don't want them to miss it. And so you really emphasize not to miss it. You know, you tell them, hey, you're going to drive for about 10 miles. And then there's going to be this turn where you need to take exit 60B. Now, it'd be really easy to miss. You, you're going to have to look out for it, but don't miss it. I'm going to say it again, 60B. And that's what Paul's doing here in this passage. See, on the road of conflict, it's really easy to miss the turn of rejoicing. And Paul knows that, and he tells these Philippians, hey, I don't want you to miss this. I know the situation that you're in where you're at odds with each other, this circumstance where there's this conflict in your midst, it would be really easy to forget to rejoice. Don't miss it. I'll say it again, rejoice. If you were doing a little word study on that idea of rejoicing, it's a, it's a concept that you find that some of the Greek philosophers really like to talk about. Uh, they describe it as uh, one of the good feelings in life, and they contrast it with grief, other feelings like fear. And uh, you get that with Paul sometimes too, like when he says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who are weeping. But for Paul, when you look at the concept of joy, it's something that's more than just a feeling. It's a settled mindset. It's an outlook. It's a chosen attitude. I would call it a settled satisfaction. 
And when you look at this passage here in the text, Paul gives us the uh, reason why we should rejoice. He tells us we should rejoice in the Lord. Uh, In other words, that the Lord is the object of our rejoicing. We should find our satisfaction in him, making the determined choice to find that satisfaction there and have that perspective. See, there are all kinds of things in your personal circumstances that might cause you to fear. There might be all kinds of things in your personal circumstances that give you a feeling of grief. But whatever your circumstances, you can always find satisfaction in the Lord. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we can always rejoice in the Lord, finding our satisfaction in Him as the object of our affections. And so that's what Paul says here in the verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. And if you were to do a word study on that word for always, it means always. All right? It means what it sounds like it means. All the time, in every circumstance, no exception, rejoice in the Lord always. Now, when I think what that looks like, practically speaking, uh, I tend to think of people that God's given me the privilege of being around who just embody a joyfulness in any and every circumstance. And when I think about that idea here at EBF, there's one person who really comes to mind for me. It's a man named Norm Blair. And uh, if, if you know Norm, you'll probably know what I'm talking about. Norm was a man who served at this uh, church as an elder for a very long time. And you know what? I watched Norm deal with a lot of very challenging circumstances. I've seen Norm deal with very difficult conflicts and leadership issues in this church. I've seen Norm deal with health challenges. I've seen Norm walk through challenges in relationships. And you know what? In any and every circumstance, Norm is a man who has a resolved outlook, a settled satisfaction in the Lord. He lives this verse out. Now, those of you who know Norm know that Norm's not all smiles and sunshine, right? He's not somebody that I think anybody would describe as having a bubbly personality. And, uh, you know, sometimes that's kind of what we mistaken for joyfulness. But joyfulness is more than just that disposition. And Norm is a man who finds satisfaction in the Lord, always keeps that perspective, regardless of the circumstance he's in. So thank you, Norm, for living this verse out for us and being a model in that way to our congregation. It's been a huge blessing to me. Now, why... Does Paul talk about this here? Why is this habit the first habit for harmony that Paul mentions to these Philippians right after he's talked about this dispute that they have in their midst? What is it about rejoicing that makes it a habit for harmony? Well, think about it for a second. Rejoicing and quarreling are kind of like oil and water, I think, right? Like, it's really hard to do one of those things and do the other one at the same time. Usually when we're doing one of those things, when we're rejoicing, probably not quarreling. When we're quarreling, we're going to find it hard to be rejoicing. They're like oil and water. At least that's the way it's always been in my own circumstances. Uh, There was a time uh, in my life we were living overseas, and uh, there was this period of time where I was in a conflict with a man that was in the church that we attended. And, and he was a great guy, but uh, we were both leading this Bible study together, and we just had some differences in our vision for what we were trying to do. And um, I'll be honest, I let that conflict kind of put me into a funk, uh, where I didn't have a whole lot of joy for a while. There was the fight that was going on in the church. It was dark and cold outside because it was the winter. 
I was kind of homesick because I was an American. Didn't have a lot of joy. And then this friend came, and they visited us for a week. And I didn't talk to that friend at all about the conflict that was going on in the church. But they helped us to see all the amazing things we had to be thankful for about our lives. All the reasons we had to rejoice in the Lord. And it changed my outlook. It gave me perspective. It put that conflict into perspective, even though I never talked about the conflict with that person. And you know what? Once I started rejoicing again, that conflict had a way of just kind of working itself out pretty quickly. Making the conscious choice to find our satisfaction in the Lord. Rejoicing in Him. It's one of the best habits of mind that we can develop if we want to experience harmony as a church. And the reason why is simple. It's because it puts things in perspective. It helps you to see the bigger picture. To recognize the conflict is part of a much bigger thing in life. And, uh, you know, what happens so often in conflict is that it consumes us. We get all wrapped up in it. We have a disagreement with somebody and it dominates our thoughts. It dominates most of our conversation. And the good things of God kind of start to fade away and we become less joyful. And then we become a little harder to get along with. And so we start to have more conflict with people. And then we become less joyful. And then we have more conflict with people. We become less joyful. And it's just this downward spiral of conflict and negativity. And even worse than that, it easily becomes contagious, right? And we start infecting other people with our pessimism and cynicism, our negative outlook. And so it's really easy to look up and all of a sudden you have a church full of Eeyores, people who have every reason to rejoice in the Lord, but it seems like they view every circumstance through this negative lens. If you aren't careful, conflict will kill your joy, both as an individual and as a church. And it happens just like that. Don't miss what Paul's saying here. It'd be easy to forget. It's hard to quarrel and rejoice at the same time, so make the choice to rejoice in the Lord. Find your satisfaction in the Lord. It's not going to feel like a natural choice at first. When everyone around you is absorbed in a conflict, this isn't going to be easy to do. It's going to take intentionality. It's going to take effort. It's going to take initiative on your part to be the person who's rejoicing when everyone's absorbed in a conflict. But if you can resolve to do it, you will be amazed at how far it goes to help you find harmony at church. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it. Rejoice. It's the first for harmony Paul gives us here in the text. And then he follows that command up with the second habit that we're also prone to forget whenever we're entering into conflict in verse 5. Not only should we rejoice in the Lord, but as we experience conflict and turmoil with one another, that's when we really need to focus on being reasonable with other people. That's the second habit for harmony that Paul lists here in this passage, that as we have conflict in the church, we need to work on keeping a level head and being reasonable with the folks around us. Look at how Paul says it in verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. You know, 
my experience as an adult in uh, adult society has led me to the belief that I think people, uh, generally speaking, the average person is probably about reasonable, you know, maybe 97% of the time. You know? I think that's the case. I don't have any statistics to back that data up. Uh, this is just anecdotal based on my own experience. Uh, my, my belief is that about 97% of the time, people are generally reasonable in their interactions with other people. Um, maybe that, that number is a little high. I see some of you kind of skeptical folks out there. Uh, I, I see the world with rose-colored glasses, okay? I'll admit that. So give or take some percentage points here or there, the other side. Most of the time, people are reasonable. I'm going to say 97% of the time, people are generally reasonable. It's that other 3% of the time that gets us into trouble, right? Uh, that's the, the time where we do the things that we're going to end up regretting, the 3% crazy time. And conflict is a really big part of that 3% crazy time, right? When we experience conflict, that fight-or-flight instinct kicks in. Reason kind of gets tossed out the window, and we end up doing and saying things that we would never do and never say when we're our 97% reasonable selves. And so I love Paul's command here in this verse, let your reasonableness be evident or be known to everyone. And the idea of reasonableness is just a generosity of thought towards others. It's extending courtesy, being willing to meet people halfway. Uh, when Paul uses this term in the two other places that he uses it, he contrasts it with being quarrelsome, pugnacious. Uh, being reasonable means not insisting on exact justice. It means not relentlessly demanding your own rights. It means not being obstinate until you get every last bit of what you think you deserve. That's what it means to be reasonable. And I love in the text how Paul uh, says, let your reasonableness be evident or be known to everyone, to all people. In other words, not just the people it's easy to get along with, but also the people that you're struggling to get together with, the people that you have tension with. Let your reasonableness be evident to them too. Show them that you're a reasonable person. And I love that because, you know, uh, all of us probably find it pretty easy to act in a reasonable sort of way with the vast, overwhelming majority of people in our lives. But then there's always that handful of people where it's not so easy to stay reasonable, right? When you're in a conflict with somebody, it's really hard to be a reasonable person. Uh, you tend not to listen as well as you listen in other situations. You tend to get all tongue-tied and say things that you really don't mean. You tend to misinterpret the things that other people are saying. You tend not to give the benefit of the doubt. You tend to be really suspicious of everything that somebody else says. You know, most people can say something that wouldn't bother you, but when you're in a conflict, you tend not to give the benefit of the doubt. When you're in a conflict, you tend to dig in your heels. When you're in a conflict, you tend not to want to meet people halfway. They're not being reasonable with you, so you don't want to be reasonable with them. And so that's what makes this verse hard. It's that little prepositional phrase, the to everyone piece of things, makes it hard to obey this command. But it's what God commands us to do. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, even those people you're having a hard time getting along with. 
And you know why it's going to be especially hard for us in our context in this day and age? Because it goes so against what we see modeled around us in the surrounding culture in 2019 when you think about how people tend to act whenever they're in conflict, right? Not demanding your own individual rights, choosing not to take offense. Could there be anything that is more radically countercultural in 2019? In our cancel culture, it seems like some people make it their full-time job to take offense at things. So we're not going to absorb this by osmosis, guys. If we're going to live this out, it won't be because we have all these models in the surrounding culture that are teaching us how to do this well. No, this is going to take intentionality. It's going to be a hard choice that we make, that we are going to go against the stream and be reasonable people even when we're in conflict with each other. And that's why I think it's important for us to notice what Paul says right after he gives this exhortation there at the end of verse 5. Did you catch it? Did you catch the little statement Paul gives to ground this exhortation for us to be reasonable? Look again at verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Paul grounds his command for us to be reasonable with each other in this statement that the Lord is at hand. Or some of your Bibles might say the Lord is near. If you look at how that term is used in other places, I think that's probably more the idea that's in mind, that idea of nearness, personal presence, proximity. The Lord is in our midst. Paul wants us to remember that whenever we're trying to be reasonable with each other in the body of Christ. Well, when I read that part of this passage this week, that's the part that really cut me to the quick. Those of you who are parents know that a statement like the Lord is near can mean a lot of different things depending on the tone of the speaker in the context, right? <laughs> the statement daddy's home means a lot of different things in the Wilson house depending on the context and the tone of that statement. Daddy's home can be a happy announcement. Daddy's home can be a warning. Daddy's home can be a reminder, a source of assurance. It can be all of those things kind of all at once for different kids in the house, depending on what's happened leading up to that statement. It's all about the tone, right? So what's Paul's tone here? What is he intending to say and have us take away from the fact that the Lord is near? Well, I think choice in words is really important here. Uh, out of all the ways that Paul could have referred to Jesus, he refers to him in this context as the Lord. And that usage of that title, Lord, is significant here and important for us to notice because it connects back to another place in Philippians where that title shows up in a really important way, back in Philippians chapter 2. So flip over to Philippians chapter 2 with me. I just want to show you this. I want to read some verses and I want you to pay attention to where this title, Lord, shows up in Philippians 2. Where is the concept of lordship found in this letter that should make us kind of come to our minds whenever we're reading the exhortation that we've been talking about here. Philippians chapter 2, and we'll read from verse 5, and again, just keep an eye out for this title, Lord, here. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him highly and bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is, say it with me, Lord. No one said it with me. Lord. (laughs) Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when we read this statement that the Lord is near in Philippians 4, it's this image of Jesus' lordship that ought to come to mind for us whenever we think about Paul's exhortation. Who is near to us as we're experiencing conflict in the body of Christ? Well, it's the Lord who emptied himself and didn't cling to his own rights and humbled himself and accepted the humiliation of a death on a cross. And he's the one who now sits exalted at God's right hand with a name that's above every name, that at his name every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the Lord who's near to us as we enter into conflict with each other. He's our model that we're supposed to follow. He's our source of comfort. He's the one to whom we all will bow the knee. And he's in our midst, near to us, as we enter into quarrels and conflicts with one another. If that doesn't sober you up, I don't know what to say to you. It's a sobering truth to consider. And I don't know about you, but it makes me want to be a lot more reasonable with the people I'm having a hard time getting along with in the body of Christ. So as we come to the end of the message today, would you just stand with me, please? I don't know what God's doing in your heart right now as you look at this passage. But I know for myself, as I prayed through this text this week and I thought about the conflicts I've been a part of, there was some sin in my life that I needed to confess. Times where I lost perspective and I forgot to rejoice. Times where I wasn't very reasonable with people. Times where I was in the very presence of the Lord in the body of Christ. And I was digging in my heels. I was demanding my own rights. I was taking offense. And that statement there, the end of verse 5, just cut right to my heart. The Lord is near. In all of our quarrels, our disputes, our disagreements, the Lord who bore all of our offense, the Lord to whom we all will ultimately bow the knee, is right there with us. He's near. If that truth is piercing your heart right now, I think there is something very specific that God would want you to do in response to this passage. You should be an early adopter of these habits for harmony that Paul's giving us here in this text. Don't wait for somebody else to take the lead in this. Take the initiative and be an early adopter of these habits that Paul's talking about here. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to feel natural. But when a church has conflict, the church desperately needs some people who will stand up and say, they are going to do these things that Paul is talking about. 
People are going to rejoice when other people are consumed in the conflicts. People are going to be reasonable when other people are digging in their heels. That's what creates a positive momentum, and eventually that spiral of negativity and conflict is reversed, and other people start getting on board. You know, conflict in a church and these habits that Paul's talking about, it's kind of like trying to open a jar. That's what I found. You know, in my house, the man in the house, uh, one of my designated roles is that I am the jar opener. And uh, it's kind of unfortunate because I have pretty weak hands, I'll be honest about that. But, right, when you're trying to open a really tight jar, at first it takes a lot of effort. I'm glad it worked, all right. It takes a lot of effort to get the thing moving. But once you get it going, it's pretty easy to keep it going. And that's what these habits for harmony are kind of like in a church. First, it's going to take a lot of effort to get the momentum going in the right direction. Somebody's going to have to stand up and get it started. And once they do, it'll be a lot easier for all the rest of us to keep it going. So if you're studying this passage today, and you're feeling a conviction of the Holy Spirit, as you think about your church experience here, then just resolve to be the one who's going to do something about it. Resolve to be one of the jar openers here at EBF. Somebody who's going to be an early adopter of these habits where you embrace these things right now. And it will be a huge blessing for our church and go a long way towards helping us experience harmony as the body of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will ultimately bow and confess to your lordship. And it's a sober, sobering reality for us to consider that this Lord, who reigns high above every power, to whom we all will ultimately will bow the knee, is right here with us in our midst, near to us, as we engage in disputes and quarrels with each other. Lord, may that reality of the nearness of God, the nearness of Jesus Christ, prompt us to embrace these habits for harmony. May we be people who rejoice in the Lord always. May we be people who let our gentleness be evident, even in the high-pressure situations of conflict. And may you take those habits and use them to bring harmony to the body of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.